Then you begin to think of all of the conditions that exist in these segregated neighborhoods that affect achievement. Lead poisoning, homelessness, economic insecurity. You can go into one after another of these many, many conditions. And after you've added them all up, you've pretty much explained the achievement gap. Welcome to another episode of School 2.0, conversations about education and everything else. According to a 2020 USA Today article that I'll link below, American schools are still surprisingly racially segregated, especially given that we formally desegregated our schools decades ago. This article says that nearly one-fifth of public schools have almost no children of color, while another one-fifth have almost no white children. The article also talks about the very stark financial and resource disparities between schools that are majority black and schools that are majority white. This is a really big problem for education especially, and today I have on author Richard Rothstein. We're going to talk about his book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Neither his book nor the first half of this podcast will mention education, so why am I having Richard Rothstein on to talk about educational issues? Well, Rothstein started as an education researcher and writer, and the more he found when researching racial disparities in schools, the more he realized that the real culprit seems to be housing policy. See, America has a lengthy history, which we will get into, of legal segregation, especially in terms of housing. Even areas that were becoming integrated found the governments intervening to segregate them. And while we've formally done away with those policies, though sometimes a lot more recently than we'd like to admit, we really haven't remedied them. So that's where you get some of the disparities and especially the segregation that we see in American schools today, even though our culture has formally left uh, legal segregation behind. I really hope you enjoy this episode and learn as much as I did in my eye-opening conversation with Richard Rothstein. Richard Rothstein, how are you today? Fine, thank you. Thanks for being with me. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you about your book, The Color of Law, and also um, how it sounds like your work in education sort of led you to this research. I feel like the best place for us to start would be to give a synopsis of your research and argument in The Color of Law, and then we can talk about how your background in education led you to it. Sure. The theme of The Color of Law is that we have an unconstitutional system of residential segregation, that we have a national myth, a rationalization, that we have all adopted, and I mean all, blacks and whites, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans. And that myth is that the reason we're residentially segregated is because of private bigotry and private action. Um, mm. Private uh, homeowners and landlords unwilling to sell to African-Americans in white neighborhoods or bigoted uh, operators of uh, private businesses like real estate agencies or banks or developers, or maybe because uh, people like to live with each other of the same race. So we just feel more comfortable that way. Or maybe because of income differences. African-Americans have lower average incomes than whites, and so many can't afford to move to um, more highly resourced neighborhoods. All of these individual bigoted private sector activities and self-choices is what uh, created residential segregation. We give a name to this explanation. Uh, the name is de facto segregation, a term we all use. Uh, de facto segregation is segregation that wasn't created by government. Mm. And we all think, and the Supreme Court has said, that if the government didn't create it, the government may not 
be permitted to uh, fix it. Mm. And the theme of the book is that this is other nonsense. The reason we have uh, racial segregation in every metropolitan area of this country is because of racially explicit policies on the part of the federal, state, and local governments that were designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near one another, one another in any metropolitan area. Because of these racially explicit policies, uh, they violated the Fifth Amendment when the federal government was doing it, violated the 14th Amendment when state and local governments were doing it. Because of this, our system of residential boundaries is as unconstitutional as the segregation that we address in the 20th century, whether of lunch counters or buses or uh, legal segregation in schools. And because it's uh, government created, not de facto, not uh, spontaneous, not by accident, because it's government created and a constitutional violation, mm. we have an obligation as American citizens to redress it, to fix it. That's what a civil rights violation imposes upon us. Yeah. So that's the argument of the book. One of the things that was really surprising to me, and I'm sure is surprising to a lot of people um, that I, I got in your book, was that at, at some point it just wasn't the case that uh, many um, many areas were segregated. The areas were becoming more integrated, and you say it was government policies from there that often kind of nudged in the other direction towards segregation. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Sure. In the mid early 20th century. Uh, we were a manufacturing economy. Uh, there was none of this internet stuff. Uh, you know, workers had to live near the factories where they worked. They didn't have automobiles to drive. Yeah. And factories had to be located near deep water ports or railroad terminals to get their parts to ship their final products. So if you had a factory district that was employing both black and white workers, uh, the uh, uh, workforce had to live within walking distance or short streetcar distance uh, from the, the factory district. And if you had a factory district that was employing both black and white workers, uh, they, um, they had to live in broadly the same neighborhoods. I'm not saying that every other house was black and every other house was white, but broadly the same neighborhoods. Uh, the very first uh, federal uh, project, public housing project in this country, uh, there was no civilian public housing in this country prior to the New Deal, prior to 1933, prior to Roosevelt taking office in the Depression. The very first public housing project that was built in 1933 uh, was built in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the, uh, it was in an in integrated neighborhood near downtown Atlanta. Atlanta had uh, segregated schools and segregated water fountains and segregated buses, but it had integrated neighborhoods for the reasons I just described. Yeah. The neighborhood called the Flats was this was the area where the very first civilian public housing project ever to build, be built in this country was built. It was built for whites only, uh, forcing the African Americans who were demolished from this uh, previously integrated area to find less adequate housing elsewhere to double, triple up with relatives. Uh, the great African American poet, novelist, the uh, playwright Langston Hughes, wrote in his autobiography, The Big C that he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Not how we think of downtown Cleveland today. He said his best friend in high school was Polish. He said he dated a Jewish girl in high school. Not surprising, right. it was an integrated neighborhood. The Public Works Administration went into that neighborhood, and demolished housing, and created two separate projects, mm. one for whites, one for African-Americans. 
creating a pattern of segregation in that neighborhood and with other uh, 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 projects elsewhere in Cleveland, reinforce that segregation. Uh, in, in the color of law, I like, uh, you know, to speak of um, self-satisfied smug places that uh, think they're better than North Carolina, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of them I talk about is uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. Oh, yeah. The yeah. area between Harvard and MIT, the Central Square neighborhood, was a fully integrated neighborhood in the 1930s. But the Public Works Administration um, demolished housing there and built two separate projects, one for whites, one for African-Americans, yeah. creating a, a policy and a pa- pattern of segregation in the Boston metropolitan area uh, that persists to this day. And let me say, every one of these actions was a violation of the Fifth Amendment, mm. a violation of the Constitution, a civil rights violation. Yeah, and to and be sure. Yeah, go on. And, and to be sure, some of these acts were in fact challenged in the courts, but maybe the courts having the makeups they did at the time, um, they chose to uphold these ordinances, right? Well, there were very few uh, uh, a challenge in the courts at the beginning. Uh, later on, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, some began to be challenged. But, um, you know, there wasn't much of a... a well-funded civil rights movement with litigation mm. capacity that could challenge them right. uh, at the time. The, uh, you know, the NAACP at the time was really the only civil rights organization, uh, major civil rights organization. Uh, its lawyers got a grant in 1933 to challenge the uh, segregation of uh, schools. Uh, and it, uh, it did. It took embarked on a 20-year period that eventually led the program that eventually led to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Right. But there's a nickel and dime organization. They had no yeah. ability to handle housing at the same time as education. And they didn't. They weren't able to. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, OK, I can imagine the conservative or, or let's just suppose conservative critic would say, well, these ordinances are no longer in place. I mean, some of them are are, are, are pretty recent, but but still, they're, they're no longer in place. So any inequalities that are persisting must not be because of those ordinances. But I think, I mean, your argument is that those ordinances really locked in certain features that just had their own inertia, it seems like. Uh, once you establish residential segregation and especially kind of the financial inequalities that could come along with that, it's really hard spontaneously for, for the sort of integration to occur that would bring things to an equitable level. Would that be fair to say? Well, um, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this very briefly. I, I don't think I can. I'm going to have to take <laughs> it by May. Um, the, uh, the policies that were implemented in the 20th century were so powerful that they determine the segregation of today. And let me give you one example. Yeah. A very, very powerful policy. <clears throat> In the uh, uh, post-World War II period, the federal government, through the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, uh, began a program to um, move the entire white working class population out of the urban areas where they were living. I described that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them integrated, into single-family homes in all white suburbs. Uh, That was the uh, federal government's uh, program. Mm. Uh, And with that program, they built uh, 
suburbs. We were in the suburban country at the time. The only people living outside urban areas were wealthy people, but they built uh, suburbs that created uh, a white noose around every metropolitan area. These were all white suburbs. Uh, the most famous of these is uh, probably Levittown, east of New York City, mm -hmm. uh, 17,000 homes in one place. The uh, builder of Levittown, William Levitt, could never have gotten the capital to buy the land and build those homes on his own in the private sector. No bank would be crazy enough to lend him the money to do such a thing. 17,000 homes in a country that wasn't yet suburban. Uh, the banks didn't think anybody would want to buy these homes. Mm. The only way that Levitt could build this subdivision, and I'm not picking on Levitt, there were hundreds and hundreds of these projects in every metropolitan area in this country of, of uh, suburban developments that were created during this great suburbanization period after World War II. The only way that Levitt and these other builders could get the capital was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, submitting their plans for the development, the, the construction materials they were going to use, the um, design of the streets, the architectural plans, and so forth, and a federally required commitment that they never sell a home to an African-American. Wow. The Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration even required that Levitt place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans and rental to African-Americans. Wow. Uh, uh, this was an unconstitutional policy. It was not the action of rogue bureaucrats working at the FHA or VA. It was written out in the federal policy manual of the FHA. It was a, the underwriting manual distributed to appraisers all over the country whose job it was to um, uh, evaluate the applications of builders, of uh, to uh, developers to build these subdivisions. The federal manual said that you could not recommend for a federal bank guarantee a project that was going to be um, integrated, that was going to sell to African Americans. You couldn't even recommend for a federal bank guarantee a project that was going to be for whites only It was going if it was going to be located near where African Americans were living. Mm. Because in the words of the manual, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the manual said. This notion of de facto segregation is other nonsense. Mm. Well, um, with these federal bank care, oh, let me just, maybe I'll interrupt myself and say yeah. that in my book, The Color of Law, I have a photograph of a six-foot-high, half-mile-long concrete wall that the Federal Housing Administration required a Detroit builder to construct before they would approve a loan uh, to develop an all-white subdivision uh, that was no located near where African Americans were living, and that wall was to separate his project from uh, a nearby African American neighborhood. Well, to get to the, the the real point of your question, those homes sold at the time they were in it very expensive for working class families. Uh, they sold for eight nine thousand dollars a piece in the mid twentieth century. Uh, in today's money, inflation adjusted, that's about a hundred thousand uh, dollars. The white families who bought those homes saw those homes appreciate in value over the next few generations. They no longer sell for a hundred thousand dollars. They now sell for. Three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars yep. in some parts of the country, a million dollars or more. The white families uh, who bought those homes gained wealth from the appreciation and the value of their homes. That's how most families in this country gain wealth, if they have any, from the equity they have in their homes. The um, the white families uh, use that wealth to send their children to college, 
they use it to take care of uh, perhaps medical or temporary unemployment emergencies. They use it to subsidize their retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African Americans were prohibited, prohibited from participating in this wealth generating program. Mm. The result is that today, nationwide, African American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. There's a whole story behind that too. We don't have time to go into it. Yeah. Uh, but you'd think that uh, if there was a 60% income ratio, it'd be 60% wealth ratio as well. People can save the same amount of money from the same incomes. But whereas there's a 60% income ratio, African-American households have only 5% of the wealth of white households. Wow. And that enormous disparity um, between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. And that we've never taken upon ourselves the obligation which we have to remedy it. Mm. Well, now let me get to the answer, the specific answer to your question. Um, the Fair Housing Act prohibited ongoing discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. Uh, that policy that I described of the FHA and VA is no longer in force. Uh, African Americans can now get FHA or VA loans just as easily as whites can. Uh, and as a result of the Fair Housing Act, that community I talked about before, Levittown, uh, has about a, a, a 2% African American population. There are African Americans who can afford to buy homes for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, but most African Americans cannot because of that wealth gap. They can't come up with a down payment uh, for those homes, and uh, their incomes are too low as a result of other policies of segregation, which I say we don't have time to go into, yeah. um, so that they can afford it. Well, Levittown is in the neighborhood that's about fifteen percent African American. So the difference between that 2% that the Fair Housing Act can take care of and the 15% that's largely a result of that wealth gap that was unconstitutionally created is the difference that can't be taken care of by the Fair Housing Act. And so to say that the, the Fair Housing Act can undo that policy of segregation is, is fallacious. It can't. Uh, we need the only way to undo that is to enact the reverse kind of policy from the one that we implemented. We need to subsidize African-Americans to move into communities from which their families could have moved when they were created, but which uh, were banned to them when they were affordable to African-Americans and to whites who were working class or middle class. Yeah. Uh, there's no way the private market can uh, uh, take care of that problem. It requires a federal policy uh, an affirmative action program in housing that's as aggressive as the federal policy that created the segregation in the first place. Yeah, I also, um, kind of on a personal note, I also worry about uh, what seems like almost probably a self-perpetuating cycle. Earlier you mentioned that um, policy would often prohibit builders from um, building for racially disharmonious groups. And it just seems like that would be a self-perpetuating cycle. The less groups are integrated and the less groups experience each other closely on a regular basis, the less harmonious they would be. And it would just perpetuate. So for instance, I have a four and a half year old son and it really took him growing up to, for me to really notice that he wasn't 
getting a lot of uh, racially diverse interaction, um, especially because the only people of a different race he was seeing were in very predictable places. And you start thinking about, well, is he going to get impressions about people of different racial backgrounds because they're kind of segregated over there? Uh, and it just, it just seems like that, that it's a perpetuating cycle. I, I agree with you completely. Uh, when we have, when we force, as we did, African-Americans to live in overcrowded uh, neighborhoods uh, without adequate public services, uh, without um, space uh, for uh, either residential space inside or space outside where their children can play, for example, where they're so overcrowded that all of their social life takes place on the streets, not in living rooms as it does in white communities with uh, multiple bedrooms and uh, other rooms in their homes. Uh, when we create that kind of situation, whites look at those neighborhoods and they see them as slums um, because of public policy, but they don't know that. They see them as slums and they conclude that African-Americans are naturally slum dwellers. Mm. And it reinforces whatever uh, feelings of um, stereotype feelings they had uh, yeah. previously. Yeah. So um, you're right. It's a circular process. It's the uh, bigoted feelings, uh, bigoted policies that create the segregation. And the segregation reinforces those attitudes. Yeah. So listeners at this point probably um, are, are realizing that we haven't really brought up education at all, but hopefully astute listeners are realizing that this probably has a lot kind of to do with uh, educational segregation as well. So one of the reasons I was so eager to talk to you on this podcast is because you have a background uh, or you've been, you've studied, you know, education policy. And I'm pretty sure I heard in another interview somewhere, you mentioned that it was your research in education and presumably educational inequalities that led you to the research that we just talked about. So can you explain kind of how your work in education led you to this other research and now has pulled you into kind of housing policy? Sure. And I apologize, but it's also not a short story, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. I'll make it as that's, brief as I can. That's fine. Um, as you may uh, know uh, uh, or remember, depending on how old your listeners are, um, we had a policy, an educational policy in the 1990s and 2000s that said the reason we have an achievement gap in schools between black and white children is because teachers have low expectations of black children. They don't try very hard. And if we could force teachers to raise their expectations of black children mm -hmm. and try harder, the achievement gap would disappear. We took that, um, I call it a ludicrous policy. I wrote many, many articles about it uh, at the time. We took that policy and enacted into federal law the No Child Left Behind Act, whose theory was in, in 2001, it was uh, voted on and adopted and implemented in 2002. Its theory was that if we test children every year and hold teachers accountable for their test scores, the achievement gap will disappear. Well, as I say, it was ludicrous. The achievement gap didn't disappear. It didn't even narrow significantly mm, uh, yeah. based on a totally flawed idea. Of course, there are some bigoted teachers who um, have low expectations of black children. Uh, there are some like that, but that's not the reason we have an achievement gap. And so in my writings at the time, I was trying to explain why that law was foolish, why it would inevitably fail. The reason we have an achievement gap is not because teachers have low expectations, although some do. The reason we have an achievement gap is primarily 
because of the social and economic conditions that uh, disadvantaged, low-income black children in particular come to school with that interferes with their ability to take advantage of what schools have to offer. Hmm. So I remember, uh, you know, I was the education columnist at the New York Times. Uh, and um, I remember writing one column about asthma. Uh, African-American children, as you know, uh, mm -hmm. I think, uh, have asthma at four times the rate of middle-class white children. It's an astounding difference, four times the rate. They have asthma at such a high rate because they live in more polluted neighborhoods, uh, more diesel trucks driving through, more industrial plants nearby, uh, more um, dilapidated buildings, more vermin in the environment, um, more uh, uh, empty lots kicking up dust. Uh, and I explained that if, if a child has asthma, that child is more likely than a child who doesn't have asthma. It's not true of everyone, but more likely to be up at night wheezing mm. and coming to school the next day sleepless or drowsy. And if you have two groups of children who are identical in every respect, same racial composition of the group, same social and economic background, same family structure, same economic uh, situation, but one group has a higher rate of asthma, that group, for that reason alone, is going to have somewhat lower achievement because sleepy children don't learn as well as well-rested children. Well, it's a tiny, it has a tiny impact. But then you begin to think of all of the conditions that exist in these segregated neighborhoods that affect achievement. Lead poisoning. Lead poisoning, as you know, has a, uh, uh, an effect, a measurable effect on IQ. And African-Americans live in neighborhoods where they're more likely to be lead poisoned. Mm. Homelessness, economic insecurity, you can go into one after another of these many, many conditions. And after you've added them all up, you've pretty much explained the achievement gap. Mm. Well, I realized uh, in, in doing this research about each of these individual conditions, that what happens when you have a school where every child has either asthma or lead poisoning or homelessness or economic insecurity or some other challenge like that? How can such a, a school ever be expected, no matter how many laws we pass and no matter how, how often we test children, to achieve at the same level as a school where children come well-rested, well-nourished in economically secure homes and spacious enough places where they can do homework uninterrupted? How can you expect those schools ever to have a similar achievement? Well, you can't. I mean, you can write a law that says they will, but you can't. Well, we call schools where we concentrate children like that. We call them, as you know, segregated schools, and schools are more segregated today than they ever have been in the last 45 years in this country. And the reason they're more segregated is because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. So I began to think of neighborhood segregation as a school problem, as an educational issue. Mm. I wasn't yet really focused on housing. And that's how I came to this topic. And then I had an experience which... Um, really uh, led me on the path <clears throat> that I subsequently took. And that's in 2007, I read a Supreme Court decision <clears throat> that involved uh, two school districts, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and Seattle, Washington. Both of these districts had a very, very token, trivial school desegregation plan. They gave parents the choice of which school their child would attend but if that choice was going to further exacerbate segregation, it wouldn't be honored in favor of the choice of a, chi of a child who would not do so. So if you had a school that was um, all white or mostly white, and you had one place left and both a black and a white child applied for that last place, black child would be given some preference, help to 
minimize the segregation in the school. It was a trivial program. Uh, you don't have one place left very often, and both a black and a right. white child apply for it. But the Supreme Court evaluated it, denounced this program, said you couldn't do such a thing. The controlling decision was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. The Chief Justice explained that um, it's true, he said, the schools in Louisville and Seattle are segregated. But he said the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated de facto. Mm -hmm. All of those reasons I described before. He yeah. said, well, you have de facto segregation, <clears throat> segregation that the government hadn't created. Uh, the government is prohibited from doing anything about it. Well, I read this decision <clears throat> and I remembered, <clears throat> excuse me, I remembered reading about something that happened in Louisville some years before that decision. There was a white homeowner in a single family home in an all white suburb, like one of the ones I described earlier. Uh, called Shively. Uh, the, uh, the white homeowner uh, had a, an African-American friend who was living in the center city of Louisville. The African-American friend was a decorated Navy veteran, had a wife and a child, wanted to move to a single family home, but nobody would sell him one. So the white homeowner in this uh, all white suburb of Shively bought a second home and resold it to his African-American friend. Yeah. And when the African-American family moved in, an angry mob surrounded the home, protected by the police. Ooh. They threw rocks through the windows. Police made nothing, did nothing to stop it. They dynamited and firebombed the home. The police did nothing to stop it. But when this riot was all over, the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year sentence, the white homeowner for sedition. Mm. Sold a home in a white neighborhood to a black family. And I said to myself, this doesn't sound to me much like de facto segregation. If the police agents of the mm, state yeah. are, um, and the courts and the prosecutors are enforcing racial boundaries in Louisville, I looked into it further. I found there were hundreds and hundreds of cases, I'm not exaggerating when I use these numbers, of police protected, sometimes police organized and led mob violence to drive African-Americans out of homes that they had legitimately purchased or rented in white neighborhoods. Every one of these was a constitutional violation, a 14th Amendment violation uh, when the police were involved. And then when I looked into it further, um, I discovered that there were many, many, and I've described some of them to you already, federal, uh, state, and local policies, racially explicit, that were designed to ensure that blacks and whites could not live near one another. So that's how my interest in education took me to be a student of housing, and I haven't paid much attention to education. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I would it be fair to say um, that your position would, would be something like um, if we were to fix, find ways to fix the, the problem of housing segregation, then we would have a really good shot at fixing the discrepancies we see in school? Because I hear a lot of people talk about school funding as if that's the issue. And that probably is a part of the issue, but it seems like that's the issue is further back than that. The issue is why districts have different amounts of money to spend in the first place. And that may be more because of the housing segregation. Well, I think you're right. Uh, school funding inequalities are certainly uh, important to address. But um, remember that, uh, say, New York City, which spends $18,000 per pupil or thereabouts, yeah. um, has an achievement gap that's uh, not much different from um, districts around the country that spend four or $5,000 right. 
uh, per pupil. Right. So equalizing school funding is not going to solve this problem. The only way we're going to solve this problem is by creating uh, opportunities for African-Americans to live in well-resourced neighborhoods, not just well-resourced schools, so that they don't come to school with those kinds of disadvantages that I described. Because um, if, if a child has asthma or lead poisoning or homelessness or any of the other conditions yeah. described, a well-funded school is not going to eliminate those problems. It can address them better. I'm not the, I'm certainly yeah. not opposed yeah. to school finance equalization. It's a very important thing to do. To fix this problem, we need to do many, many different things. But the notion that the only reason we have an achievement gap is because schools in, in low-income neighborhoods are poorly funded uh, is not the case. And as I, I gave that example in New York uh, before, you know, there are many uh, uh, schools that serve low-income children if they're in cities that are wealthy who, who get more money per pupil yeah. than um, uh, schools that serve typical middle-class children around the country. And that hasn't served, uh, shown to be a, a panacea. Right. Okay, so I can I can hear a critic. Um, I've heard conservative critics make a point like as follows when presented with something like your argument. Um, are you saying that black kids can only do well if they're surrounded by white kids in the same school? Um, and of course, I think that's probably a deliberate oversimplification um, on their part. But but what's the response to that? Because it sounds like um, it sounds like that objection would be leveled at you in your argument. Well, yeah, I, I may give an answer that surprises you. Yes, I think black children need to sit next to white children in order to do well. And I think white children need to sit next to black children in yeah. order to do well. We're a diverse society. And if people are going to um, be successful as adults in a diverse society, they need to have a diverse experiences as children. So I think integrated education is an important uh, uh, reform in that respect. But black children sitting next to white children or white children sitting next to black children are not going to solve the problems of disparate rates of asthma, uh, disparate rates of homelessness, disparate rates of lead poisoning, all the things I talked about before. Right. And uh, that can only be addressed uh, by desegregating neighborhoods um, and uh, enabling uh, African-American families to live in conditions that uh, would have been affordable to them yeah. when they were unconstitutionally excluded from them and which are now unaffordable uh, without uh, non-existent federal remedial action. Right. So in some sense, it's almost... Uh, um Integration of neighborhoods isn't simply about uh, blacks, whites, and others being around each other. It's all of us having similar access to the same sorts of wealth conditions. Absolutely. The same yeah. resources. Right, right. The same access to good jobs, access to transportation that uh, gets you to good jobs, access to clean air. Yeah. Access yeah. to um, uh, health care, good health care. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's my response to that conservative critic would would kind of take what you said and, and maybe go a little bit further and say, yeah, it's it's not just that white faces and black faces and Latino faces in the same classrooms will do something. It's that we all have access to the same sorts of opportunities because we're together. Um, and I think that's what the conservative critic might miss about that. What about school choice? Um what are the prospects for allowing people, even in residentially segregated areas, 
to choose at least into theoretically integrated schools uh, is would you do you hold any any real hope of, of promise for that sort of policy to do anything? Well, this is a well-worn discussion, as you know. Uh, I don't think I'm going to say anything you haven't heard before. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, most I, – I don't know where you're broadcasting from, but I, I think it's probably a, a rural area or a semi-rural area. Yeah, I'm, I'm suburban rural, and I should specify that uh, I, I teach uh, an intro to diversity class. And one of the things I tell my students, similar to kind of what we've already alluded to, is we live in an area that, like a lot of areas, um, you kind of know if someone says to you something about the black area of town, you know where that is. And if someone says something about the white area of town, you know where that is. And it's pretty uh, safe to say that that the black area of town would be less affluent than the white area of town. And like I tell my students, that that can't be accidental. It, it just can't be an accident that it winds up that way. Um, and I, that's why I really appreciate your book, because you, you do trace it back to kind of measurable policies that may have set that up. Anyway, that, that's just kind of my preface about where, where I'm broadcasting from. Well, I, the reason I bring that up, and so let me conclude by uh, uh, talking about this. Uh, most disadvantaged African-American children uh, who are the subject of all this concern about the achievement gap live too far distant from uh, highly resourced communities for school choice to offer them opportunities to go to uh, schools that will be where they will be more successful. Um, having said that, there are a number of problems with uh, school choice that I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, when you uh, provide choice, some parents will take advantage of it and others won't. And the ones who will take advantage of it will be the most highly motivated, uh, ambitious parents. Uh, leaving behind even more concentrated poverty mm. and disadvantage uh, than they left. So mm. uh, school choice is uh, uh, a complicated issue which has both costs and benefits. Uh, now, part of the, the discussion about school choice, and I don't know if this is your, what you're alluding to, is not just choice of public schools, right. but choice of charter schools. And uh, charter schools, again, like the myths about the achievement gap, charter schools have not accomplished what they have promised. Mm. And a very simple reason why not. There are some charter schools which are terrific and highly motivated, well-educated parents can choose those charter schools and know about them and send their children to them. And those children may do better than they would do otherwise. Some public schools are terrific. Uh, the quality of many public schools, and I've been in many of them in urban areas, are quite high. Uh, the reason, as I said uh, earlier in this talk we've been having, that uh, the lower achievement of their students is not uh, uh, because the, the school quality isn't good. It's because of the conditions in which they come to school mm. with. And so the result is that when you look at uh, the charter school versus regular public school sector, uh, the achievement on average is about the same. There are some great public schools, some great charter schools. And the reason is not hard to understand if you think about it. The whole point of a charter school is to deregulate the school. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, if you have a school, a charter school, that um, oh, where, where teachers don't have to be certified, where the principal can uh, hire a teacher whom the, uh, she what he thinks is inspired, and that teacher will do a great job. And that's true. 
But when you deregulate schools and say the teachers have to be certified, some principals will hire inspired teachers who uh, will do a great job without being certified. And other principals will hire uh, their nephews and nieces uh, who are not qualified. Right. And uh, that's the pattern in charter schools. There are some that, are, uh, that exceed typical regular schools and some that fall far below typical regular schools. So uh, on average, the achievement in charter schools and regular schools is, is no different. But there are certainly some very good charter schools, as there are some very good regular schools. Yeah. So let's just, uh, if I can ask a concluding question, um, what are some ideas on how we remedy this residential um, and wealth inequality? You mentioned um, an affirmative action sort of program. Uh, do you have any ideas on the most promising ways to implement something like that? Well, um, you're asking me about my next book. Uh, <laughs> But uh, as, as um, we said, there's, um, there's no political support for these remedies at this point. So we can have all the policy ideas we want, and there are many yeah. of them out there, and I'm going to be describing them in my next book. But until we have a new civil rights movement yeah. that's going to make it uncomfortable to maintain these segregated patterns, we're not going to be able to uh, accomplish what we need to accomplish. So I mentioned that affirmative action program. I can, I'll, I'll just in conclusion mention a couple of others, but there are dozens and dozens of policies that are well known that we should be following. Mm. Um, the, uh, the Section 8 voucher program reinforces segregation uh, because um, most landlords refuse to accept uh, rentals from families with Section 8 vouchers. Uh, and so the only place they have to go is in existing low-income segregated neighborhoods. The vouchers are also amounts are calculated on an area-wide um, average basis. And that means that the vouchers are too low, too little, to afford rentals in high opportunity places and too high to afford mm. rental in um, segregated low-income places. And landlords in those segregated neighborhoods exploit the program by charging more than the market would otherwise bear, require. Um, so that program needs to be reformed, and the reforms are obvious. So we should pro prohibit discrimination against Section 8 voucher holders, and we should adjust the amount of the vouchers so that they're higher for people who want to use them in higher opportunity communities. Same thing is true of the low-income housing tax credit program, the single biggest program we have for subsidizing the housing of uh, low-income families. It's a Treasury Department program. Uh, the Treasury Department distributes tax credits to states, which then in turn distribute them to um, uh, nonprofit developers to build low-income housing. The Treasury Department's hmm. regulations are backwards. Uh, the Treasury Department says that the priority should be placed on putting most of the low-income housing tax credit projects in existing low-income segregated neighborhoods. It's other nonsense. It's reverse of what we should be doing. Um, it doesn't say it's for the purpose of... of uh, of creating segregation, but that's the effect of such mm. a priority. We should be reversing that priority. Yeah. One of the biggest obstacles we have to um, solving this problem are zoning ordinances that prohibit the construction of anything but uh, town, uh, anything but single-family homes on uh, large lot sizes, and prohibit the construction of of, of homes that would be more affordable uh, if properly subsidized and and allocated to uh, townhouses, garden apartments. Uh, um, uh, low-level apartment buildings of high quality, 
Um, so those are the kinds of programs we should be implementing. As I said there are many, many other ideas out there, uh, policies that are discussed. We have no lack of policy ideas. What we lack is a new civil rights movement that will um, take upon itself the obligation to address this uh, constitutional violation of segregation. And uh, let me, if I can conclude by saying sure. that uh, I am um, working with a group of national civil rights leaders uh, who are um, attempting to create a new national committee to redress segregation uh, in housing. It's called the National Committee to Redress Racial Segregation. Its point will be not to come up with policy ideas. As I said, we've got lots of them. Right. Purpose will be to um, create and support local civil rights groups that are going to take action to make it uncomfortable to maintain segregation. And if any of your listeners are uh, interested in uh, receiving the announcement of the launch of this committee, they should send a, uh, an email to ncrrs at greenlining.org, uh, ncrrs at greenlining.org, saying they want to be informed about the uh, launch of the National Committee to Redress Racial Segregation. Give their name and email address and um, city and town where they live, and we'll put them on the list to be notified. Fantastic. Fantastic. Richard Rothstein, it's been great talking to you. It's been absolutely informative, um, and I hope you do inspire listeners to, to contact the organization. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>